Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for joining us on Toronto Today. Great to have you in for Wednesday's show. Andrea Horvath, former NDP leader and leader of the official opposition at Queen's Park, will join us. 13-year run uh, as leader of the NDP. A lot's changed in all our worlds over that time. So we'll explore some of that and why she wants to be the mayor of Hamilton. Uh, she's jumping right back into municipal politics where it all started for her in her hometown. And we'll find out why indeed that's the case. Um, we have to talk about tragedy last night in Mississauga, uh, a go train uh, hitting a four-year-old girl. The family was uh, allegedly, according to uh, police reports, crossing the tracks. They were able to do so through a fence. Um, a terrible, terrible situation. But we want to uh, give you some context of it. And Hockey Canada hearings. It's a struggle just putting those words together. This is an organization that shouldn't we shouldn't be calling it that. That should be not named that. The executive shouldn't be there. And finally, someone in prominence, Sheldon Kennedy, said they all need to quit. And if they can't quit, let's find another way to get rid of them from their posts right now. And I couldn't agree more. All that's coming up. Toronto Today begins now. Perry Omiyasu is uh, originally from uh, Samson Cree Nation, as we mentioned, says, I'm not interested in this visit. This brings no comfort to some residential school survivors. Um, Perry, give us a sense. How do you view this from afar? You've said the visit, the apology. It, it doesn't do much. And you've said it isn't for you. Do you feel the same even after watching the last couple of days? And I still agree with my own thinking is that, you know, it, it helps a lot of people, I'm sure, that believe in Christianity and but, but it certainly wasn't for me. It, that's not my deal. It's, uh, but, I, but I don't support them, like, you know, not doing it. There's some things that I did. Uh, I watched the Pope at uh, Muscatish mm-hmm. at Ermiskin Residential School. And, and, I, and uh, there's a couple of things that I didn't really care for. But I guess the biggest one was when, when they gave him uh, uh, a war bonnet or a headdress. And, and they put it on him. And I, and I thought that was so wrong. To me, that was so wrong. But and, and I, I, thinking about it for a bit, I think... Uh, Wilton Lillichild had had it and gave it to him on his own. It wasn't on behalf of the Samson Cree Nation or, or the uh, Muscatese people or, or, or anything like that. That was just his own personal gift. Chief Lillichild thought that, oh, he deserves it because he's understanding and making a progress on uh, Indigenous kind of residential school issues. And he uh, thought he deserved it. So who am I to say that... Uh, somebody's belief on what they deserve and what they don't. Like, I'm, I'm not that guy. I, I was a little taken aback about it. Are they giving him a headdress? Are they actually giving him a yeah. headdress? That seems so wrong to me. But, you know, after uh, thinking about it and, and talking to other peers, and uh, yeah, I kind of felt, okay, well, that's well, little child's uh, thing, not mine. It's like me giving uh, you an eagle feather. Yeah, I think you're fair to say that. And it doesn't make you uh, that guy, as you say, because you get a seat at the table, you get an opinion, you've got your own personal journey. So I think you have every right. And you're not the only one to say it's it, we can't indoctrinate the leader of the Catholic Church into our community and call him one of us because that tell me if I'm wrong. That's in essence what the headdress means is you're now in our group and that's not really what the Pope is or who he is. Yeah. That's not what it is. What, uh, and it's not why he was, uh, they gave him that headdress again. It's a, uh, it Wilton's little child's only personal belief. That was just saying, you know, he deserves it in his opinion. He deserved it. And he's going to get it from me. So, and one of the things when the Pope was uh, saying his apology, I really noticed that he didn't say sexual abuse, eh? that they're sorry for the sexual mm-hmm. abuse that happened. That word sexual abuse didn't come up at all. He talked about all kinds of other stuff, but he stayed away from that word which kind of uh, 
irritated me more a bit saying like, you know, take responsibility for your actions and for your people. Stop hiding that kind of, that kind of sexual abuse that happened with our people. It, it was by literally by the thousands. To me, that was a lack of priority on their part. And, and I'm sure like they had four or five people right after that speech. Uh, they, you know, so I'm sure that everybody knew what the, the, that Pope was saying. You know, the, at least a team of writers that were uh, knew what that uh, Pope was going to say to them. So, yeah, them literally leaving that word out, it kind of really bothered me a bit. That they're still reason. not taking responsibility for their actions. I hear you. Uh, just to reset, Perry, uh, Omiyasu is joining us from Samson Cree Nation um, in uh, Alberta. He's a residential school survivor, mental health counselor. He's on Toronto today, of course, on 640 Toronto. I think you hit on something at the end there, Perry, that this is a very protected speech. It's a very um, it's a very legally safe speech. And though it provides comfort and and I guess emotion and maybe closure to some, it's it's a safe speech. He's not exactly look, he's 85, too. He's not exactly going off script and he's not exactly opening up the Catholic Church to um, admitting everything that people hold them responsible for in these situations. Oh, yeah, we certainly knew what the. Uh, what, what was going to happen with that uh, speech? You know, it's, this is like a publicity tour for the Pope, at least, you know, for, within indigenous people and stuff. Eh? He wants to gather people. And, and uh, for him to come to Muscatchies, they paved the roads for him. They literally paved the roads for him. But they wouldn't give us uh, Samson Cree Nation, which is on Muscatchies, clean drinking water. You know, I, I told somebody they should give him a glass of water. Like our, water, our tap water is brown. You know, we have to buy water. At the local stores, which yeah. is like, which is terrible, and it's not like it's not the Catholic Church's responsibility to give us clean drinking mm-hmm. water, but it, we had a contract with the government of Canada to have clean drinking water to have our, to have our, all our needs uh, met, and it's like, you know it, that's not that's not there. But you know we kind of blame their church and responsibility for where our our First Nation society stands today. It was a lot lot of uh, our people are suffering from intergenerational uh, uh, trauma from uh, residential school. It's like, you know, all the people that uh, had uh, gone to residential school, they're all like in, in their 60s now and passing away. There's not too many left. Another 20 years, there'll be very, very few left. You know, there'll be like a, just a handful of left. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's uh, mm. those uh, intergenerational survivors that are going to have to pick up the flag and, and keep walking towards this. Eh? They keep, keep, yeah. keep that march going, keep that uh, uh, talk alive. My son was in university last year. He graduated. But, he, uh, but I remember him telling me, like, you know, phoning me and saying, Dad, these, these, this guy just asked me, like, you know, what's the, what's the most positive thing that came out of resident, Indian residential school? And I and my son said I took offense to it. I didn't know how to react to it. And I told and I told the professor, my dad still talks about it and, and still suffering today. I phoned my dad and asked him, what did you think? And I told my son, tell him nothing came out of good came out of resident in residential school. Nothing. Say that to him, you know, in your class. When you think about that and your son growing up someday, maybe to have kids, maybe. Maybe you're a grandfather. You're. I'm not ready to be a grandfather. You're probably not. Let's wait. Let's put, hit the pause button on that. But I ask you that to ask how much relief you'll feel. You, you, you know, you've been brave and bold telling your story as a res- residential school survivor. You help other people with their mental health. How relieved are you, though? I'm sure there's been roadblocks for your son to get where he's got to when you eventually have a grandson or granddaughter that you just hope. 15 years from now, 10 years from now, we're in a better place than we are even now. Does that give you hope? Oh, it certainly gives me hope. I, th- I think my, uh, raising my children in, in, um, in, in, a, in a world that uh, 
both teachings from uh, two different worlds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Eh? It's okay to like, you know, to be indigenous and to be proud and stuff uh, and wear his braids on the inside and, and, and still walk away with a degree. You know, it's, uh, you know, him succeeding in, in our world. You know, I, I did the same thing when I was, uh, I, I was lost in, in my early uh, uh, life in my twenties there because uh, I was really kind of culturally kind of, kind of insensitive. And I thought, Oh, like, you know, indigenous, that's a, that's like a dirty word in the white in the white people in the 1970s, and and we like you know I had to pretend to to, to uh, be involved with my culture too much. I'm proud of the work that I get to do. I sit on several board of directors around around child and families and welfare systems. I uh, I'm an avid uh, community member around native ceremonies. Uh, I, I like to support all, all kinds of kind of avenues that that come my way and stuff, and and I like to educate uh, people along the way. Part of the part of the Indian residential school system. Two was to, what I said was to uh, educate the, the school system. They got to make it in the curriculum, well, whether it be from elementary school, middle school, high school. They got to start in that avenue. You can't pretend that that didn't happen. So many people had come to me, good friends of mine, non-native friends, came to me and said, Perry, I didn't know that all that stuff happened in residential school. I did not even know that existed. Like, you know, and I said, and, and ignorance is kind of bliss. But but I said, too, yeah, that it's not your fault. You know, we don't take it. But don't take it personally. Like, you know, it's not you that I'm like, you know. That, no, I'm glad. I'm listen, about. I'm glad you said that. My dad taught history and, and we, we lived out in London. We would go play ball against uh, the Oneida Indians or the Chippewa Indians. And, and, and it was like it, I, I really liked having conversations with those players that were my age or when we'd see them somewhere and I recognize them from baseball, Perry. And I'll tell you what, you said something that was so prescient, like you're proud of who you are. You're proud of who your son is. And that's all you can do over the course of a day is try to do more good than bad. Put your head down on the pillow. No, you didn't do more bad than good. And um, and I tell my boys that all the time. I mean, they look like me. I want them to be proud of who they are, who I am. And and we want to we just want to be better. Right. We got to be better than every generation that came before us. We have to. We have to be good human beings, especially I got three sons and uh, I tell them to walk with the uh, back straight and their head up. And I says, you know, it's just just walk like into mm-hmm. a restaurant like, you know, the, like you, you own part of it, but not don't be walk arrogant, but walk <laughs> proud. That's Perry Omiyasu, uh, originally from uh, Samson Cree Nation. He's a residential school survivor, a mental health counselor. Our next guest, uh, former leader of the Ontario NDP for 13 years, Ontario's opposition leader, and she will be running for mayor of Hamilton in this fall's municipal election. Here she was making comments to uh, a crowded room of NDP supporters on election night. I'm not shedding tears of, of sadness. I'm shedding tears of pride. Look at you. Look at all of you. Look at what we have done together. Look at what we have done together. Honestly, together, my friends, we have built a party that is stronger and more ready to govern than ever before. Andrew Horvath on election night, and she will run for the mayor of Hamilton. And I was excited to hear this. Andrea Horvath joins us now on Toronto Today. Um, congratulations on this decision and for, uh, you know, a, a fantastic run. I think I know I know you're leaving the NDP in a better place, I would say, and a, maybe a more electable place than when you found it. And, and that was probably one of the goals when you uh, when you became leader in 2009, 13 years ago. Oh, absolutely, Greg. And, and thanks for acknowledging that. It was a, it was a, a labor of love. <laughs> and uh, when I started, I said to myself, 
it's my party and I'll try if I want to to bring it into relevance. And I think I think myself and others along that uh, that journey over the last 13 years uh, were able to do that. And I'm, I'm really proud of that work. And I, I thought I remember saying the Friday morning afterwards, look, we all wake up a little bleary, uh, not much of us uh, got much sleep. And I'm sure you didn't with, with the decision that you had uh, weighing on your mind. But I remember saying on the show, I think this was still a good night for the NDP. You lost seven seats, but you were still the official opposition leader. You kept the vast majority of your uh, of your incumbent uh, MPPs. And and I, I, I think you're there and, and who the NDP picks as leader will, will matter a lot for sure. But you're in a good place for 2026 to me. Yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, uh, what the party can do, what the official opposition the NDP can do over these next four years uh, to continue to uh, to offer Ontarians a vision uh, that really speaks to the uh, the concerns and the needs that we heard about not only in this last campaign, but heck, we've got four years ahead of us, uh, and let's see what the government can do to solve some of those. Uh, real deep concerns that people have. I think about particularly our healthcare system, mm. which is falling apart. But you know what? I'm I'm traveling back into NDP leader talk, and I'm I'm now looking at at the city of Hamilton and and what I can bring to uh, to the city I love, uh, my born and bred home, and uh, and see what I can do to to kind of help realize the potential that that my city has. And we got several minutes to talk about Hamilton. I want to ask you one more on on oh. the front of of being NDP leader. Do you is your what if and and we often deal with these and I get that it's a speculative question. Is your what if for the 2022 election what if there's no pandemic? What if there's no COVID? What we've tended to see across the the world, I think Andrea, is incumbents survive because we think they were they happened to be in the position whether they made all the right calls or not um they were in the position to take care of us and whether it was with prime minister trudeau or doug ford or other premiers or boris johnson like we just looked and thought i i think it helped incumbents regardless of policy during the pandemic and during the hell we've all been through um to be in that position is your what if what if this hadn't happened and we could have made a lot more stronger gains and and, and been able to run instead of walk Oh sure, I, I think that uh, I think that that's the um, you know the the lens that a lot of people are looking at. Not only our election, as you identify, but uh, but other elections as well. And, and one of the things I heard from a, a lot of our um, our candidates, as well as our reelected uh, incumbents and our newly elected uh, folks in some of the ridings, uh, is that people didn't want to talk pandemic. They didn't want to talk uh, change. Mm-hmm. They they didn't even want to come out to the polls in many cases. People, I think, were just exhausted, uh, and they just didn't—they didn't want to do anything else different. Their lives had been uh, upturned for so long, for a couple of years now, and it, it just felt like people wanted just steady as she goes. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I don't want any more change. Hmm. Let's just uh, keep our heads down and and go forward. Uh, and um, it, and I understand that. I mean, it really has been terrible, and there's still, of course, we're not out of it, as we know. There's still some, uh, uh, some unfortunately, some. Uh, some land to travel when it comes to COVID-19 and people, I I think people rightfully so felt like they just, they just didn't want to have any more change in their lives. And so, uh, so that's, I think when you talk about the incumbency factor, I think that's a, that's a pretty, um, pretty spot on observation. Andrea Horvath joining us on Toronto today. She will run for mayor of Hamilton in the fall. You were a city councillor until 2004 when you became an MPP. Will that be the one thing that that you have to hurdle past is some of your opponents in this race saying 
she's been in Toronto. She hasn't necessarily been in Hamilton. Now, you'll have ammunition to disprove that and say, this is what I've done for the people in my riding. This is how much I care about Hamilton. You're a born and bred Hamiltonian, so you're not you know, a parachuting into a city that you're not familiar with. How do you sort of get past that criticism this fall? Well, I'm not going to focus on that kind of a campaign. You know what I'm like. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on the positives. I'm going to focus on what I think really is uh, the, um, you know, the place where Hamilton is, where where the best years are ahead of our city. Uh, And I'm going to focus on a vision that that talks about things like making sure that our young people, that, that, that working people and that young people in our city uh, can continue to live here and afford to live here, whether you're renting or whether you're a, a homeowner or whether you want to buy into the, the market. I, I I know we have a major transit uh, project happening with the LRT, but I want to make sure that every part of, uh, of our city of Hamilton has access to public transit and that when we're on our streets, we're safe, uh, whether you're cycling, whether you're walking, taking your kids to the park, we have some really serious concerns around pedestrian and cyclist safety in this city. Uh, I, I want to realize that the opportunity that comes with the uh, the conversion of of some of our entertainment assets in the downtown, uh, it, there's just, there's so much that's going on in our city. And, and for me, you know, it's about setting out a vision uh, to achieve these uh, these opportunities. And, and that's how I'm going to stay focused. I think Hamiltonians know uh, that there's some excitement in the air uh, and that we do have some challenges. But but let's be innovative in our, our in our solutions to those challenges. Uh, and let's uh, stay hopeful and positive about uh, about fulfilling the opportunity that's before our city. As you know, municipal governments can have an influence on cost of living. They can have an influence on uh, how easy it is and difficult it is now to buy a first time home. And Hamilton's no different. And you've seen real estate prices in Hamilton uh, shoot up. It's it's problematic. These were things you documented for the whole province during the election campaign. What could a um, progressive mayor of Hamilton, what could a mayor Horvath do to make buying a first home easier for Hamiltonians? Well, that's a really great point. Uh, and in, in fact, I've already been having some of these discussions with some of the policymakers at the local level. And and and, uh, uh, and let's let's face it, we have a lot of opportunity to build infill housing in the, in the city of Hamilton. You may know that the city decided to keep a tight urban boundary, which is, I think, a good thing. There's a lot of space it's of service land already. Uh, and I've been talking to some of the people uh, that own that land and, and, and want to, you know, make sure that there is there are housing units on that land. But what we do need to do also is make sure we're providing the kind of housing that meets the needs of the people who live here and uh, and who want to stay here. So uh, so housing that meets the needs of families, housing that meets the needs of seniors, uh, of, of people who are uh, of, uh, having f- physical, for example, disabilities. We know there are issues around uh, around uh, a severe income uh, inequality and inability to afford a, a rental unit. And so how do we build some social housing into that mix? Uh, it's, so it's not just about units. It's also about how do we Put all of that together uh, in a way that uh, that uh, accommodates the growth, but mm. keeps our communities vibrant. Uh, make sure that people are connected to their communities. That we're building communities and not just places to live. I know you addressed it yesterday, but curious uh, if you can do it for our listeners. The strong mayor system that got brought up last week, which is an interesting slogan, um, but nonetheless, that's that's what it's thought of. And Toronto and Ottawa were documented as where Premier Ford wanted to give. Uh, those particular mayors, um, more powers to get things done, to avoid municipal gridlock. If that were to happen in Hamilton and Doug Ford does that, would you embrace that for you if you're the mayor? 
Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of ifs in this question, <laughs> right? And, and the, the biggest if is, is that in fact, uh, if the government does table the legislation and what does it look like? And of course, you'll know that I'll have uh, some capacity to, uh, uh, to sift through that. But, mm. but really, it, it's a pilot project, which, which I have to say, I think is smart. I mean, instead of making a huge wholesale change, uh, let, let's dip our toe in the water with a pilot mm. project. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, first of all, exactly what it looks like uh, and then second of all how it's implemented and, and what the results are in places like Toronto and places like Ottawa do I have a, a little bit of a worry uh, about um, you know about uh, unbridled power and, and and what that can lead to uh, depending on whose hands it's in I'll just look at world events and you can know that that's de definitely an issue uh, that needs to be uh, thoughtfully uh, dealt with however uh, I'm, mm. I'm I'm open-minded to wait to, to wait to see what happens and I do want to say though regardless of, of of whether that um, power, if you will, uh, comes to the local level in Hamilton, and I happen to have the honor of serving as my city's mayor, I I'm always I'm always on the side of being as collaborative as possible. I think problem solving uh, is mm. best done when there are all kinds of voices at the table. When you make room for people, uh, and then when you hammer out, uh, you know, a solution that uh, that people can get behind. So mm. collaboration will always be a part of my uh, my uh, mo, if you will. Uh, as uh, as I travel forward, whether that's as a mayor or otherwise. Andrea Horvath, I, I wish you luck. You had a hell of a run for 13 years uh, running uh, at atop the NDP. It was your party. And I think politics is a better place with you in it. Good luck. And I hope we get to talk before the fall. Thanks so much, Greg. I appreciate the opportunity. Nice to hear from you. You bet. Andrea Horvath uh, joining us on Toronto Today. All right. Going to get to some Hockey Canada stuff uh, from what we saw. And I... <laughs> I'm just struggling using even the, that phrase because this is an organization that um, can't exist much longer, shouldn't exist much longer. And I've got a tight deadline I want to give you that where it, it just the logo has to go. The the name has to go. And I'll give you that in a couple of minutes from now. I appreciate you joining us. Kelly Cotrera, top of next hour with the Kelly Cotrera show. But we've still got a lot to do uh, in the eight o'clock hour. And we'll give away tickets to go see Brian Adams at Scotiabank Arena at the bottom of the hour. So if you want to go, we got a fun way for you to get them, uh, courtesy of our friends at Live Nation. The story Dave led, led with is uh, is terrible. It's, it's wonderful when there's good stories that are lead stories, but often they are not. And uh, the one you don't expect in a busy news week already, Pope visit. Um, Hockey Canada hearings in Ottawa, RCMP hearings in Ottawa about the mass murder in Halifax and whether there was um, government and, and uh, it, structural interference in that. So many stories and, and so little time. But when I saw the video of the story yesterday and the cop cars and there were still people on this GO train, um, a four-year-old girl lost her life last night being struck by a GO train in Mississauga. And this instantly, the phrase that comes to my brain right away is preventable tragedy. And there's some tragedies that aren't preventable that could happen to us that it, we use that phrase all the time. Well, that's every parent's worst nightmare. But there's things that you're well aware in our universe you, you cannot control. I mean, disease would be one. Car accidents would be one. I lost my grandfather in a car accident in 1980. My mom was in her mid-30s with three kids, uh, one of which I was, which couldn't have made life easy. And this thing just right before Christmas time, Christmas wasn't the same again for several years. But you expect to lose parents and you expect to maybe even lose a spouse someday. But this is not what you expect is to lose a four-year-old child hit by a go train. 
and and the things you might worry about with kids, whether it's uh, diseases or, or uh, you know, an accident um, that uh, that debilitates them or, or takes a limb away. Of course, those things are, are prominent in your brain. This one isn't and not at four and not at four. You send your kids away to university. You brace yourself. You send your kids away even to, you know, if they're a, a, a billet somewhere. Uh, they're on an exchange trip. They decide, hey, I'm 18. I want to go backpacking through Europe. Okay, don't think I can stop you. Don't think I should stop you. You should see the world. But it stresses every parent out. And I don't know what answers we'll get from this one um, that make the understanding of it any easier. The story um, that police are are moving with right now is that there was a hole in the fence line. The, the train tracks are at street level, in essence. And the train tracks have a or the train was not protected by a fence or their minimum. There was a hole cut in the fence. I saw a TV reporter wedge his way through the fence to prove that it could be done. And then time is being saved from walking back from a store or a restaurant or a public park or wherever. And it's horrific. It's horrific that this happened. And I don't know whether this is one of those this this in itself is a preventable tragedy. But I think the question now will be, are there enough stringent protections with train tracks that are at street level? And I don't know what you can do. You can only provide such a secure fence and deterrent for all people who could potentially cross a train track. That's that's all you can do. Constable Donna Carlson said this last night about the grief people are suffering and especially that of the family. We're asking for privacy for the family as they try to process this tragic incident. And they deserve it and they should get it. Um, But this is not how it's supposed to happen. And the grief counselors that Metrolinx is going to provide for the driver of the GO train. I've been on GO trains before that have stopped very suddenly and you're worried it's something that you can't even get your head around the fact it might be this, but you're worried there's a car on the tracks. There's an animal on the tracks. Um, that it's it's there's something that was placed on the tracks by other people. And I don't link it to this story about people seen riding on top of a moving goat train. We'd seen video of it a few months ago, but now it's it's reared its head again that several people were seen riding on top of a goat train on Tuesday night. I don't think the one tragedy in Mississauga is directly related to this, but it tells you in its in its independence, this story does, how brazen people are and how extremely dangerous it is. And I don't know how you stop it. How would you stop somebody riding on top of a go train in broad daylight, filming it, uh, doing a stunt, whatever is happening there? I don't know how you can stop it. You can punish it. But I don't know. It's like street racing. I don't know how you stop it. It can maybe only end one way, but nobody wants that ending. Nobody wants a tragedy related from this. It's a terrible story, and I'm sure we'll find out more about it the rest of the day. But to reset it, uh, a four-year-old girl pronounced dead after being struck by a go train in Mississauga on Tuesday night. And it wasn't dark, so this call came in at 7.39 p.m., and the trauma you'd feel driving and engineering that go train. The passengers were had to stay on the train. And I'm sure words started to filter back about what potentially happened because there'd be news coverage of it. Um, Mississauga Fire tweeted out that a child was struck by a go train at 8.15. So this is only about 45 minutes after the accident. And the footage I saw had people still on this train past 
around 840 or so uh, when it started to cross uh, my radar. I don't know what happens today in Ottawa. Let me shift to this uh, regarding Hockey Canada, but I know this, and Cahal Kelly gets this right in the Globe and Mail today. Let us agree on this much. As currently organized, Hockey Canada is finished. The hits keep coming with these guys. Last week, it was paying sex abuse victims out of a fund seeded in part with player registration fees. This week, it seems it's using another fund, one set up to cover emergency medical and dental costs of member players to defray other legal liabilities. It's dirty. It's crooked. This has to end. And I'll tell you when this has to end by. And there, it's, it's not even um, about the dates itself that I'm about to give you. It's about the name, the leadership change. Sheldon Kennedy uh, called for the immediate resignation of uh, Scott Smith. And I think we could put in other executives as well. We could look back and say, Tom Rennie, former NHL coach. What did he know? When did he know it? Bob Nicholson. Where's he been during all this? He works for the Edmonton Oilers now. But where's his accountability? Where is his statement in this concept? Bottom line, Kennedy said what everybody's thinking. A fresh start is needed. Maybe the federal government runs it for, you know, for the interim um, to allow uh, a new structure to come into place. But I mean, I think that what we need is we need a new start. And that start should start today or by the end of the week. And I'll give you two dates that are really important dates. And I'm not breaking down the games or talking about the tournament. Anything beyond the context of when these hard deadlines need to be. And fast. You cannot let junior hockey players go out and play the World Juniors starting August 9th with that logo in that uniform. With that executive body at that tournament. It's in Edmonton and Red Deer. They had to reschedule it from the winter uh, because of Omicron cases, understandably so. But they're going to start a fresh tournament with 10 teams there, August 9th to 20th. You can't have that logo. You can't have that uniform. And you can't have that executive crew. Similarly, and uh, this is not some rich irony, the Women's World Championships will go in Denmark. They will play it from August 26th to September 4th. But um, that needs to get done as well. They're going to play this in the summer. They just obviously had uh, the Women's Tournament at the Olympics, and that went off without a hitch. But this needs to be done as well. Those women can't wear that logo, represent that body, and those executives cannot be in Denmark. Like, I don't love saying this ever, but fire them and fire them all right now. Today, Sheldon Kennedy's right. And you shouldn't have needed Sheldon Kennedy to say it. And by the way, Sheldon Kennedy musters up tremendous courage. He's one of the most inspirational Canadians ever. At our, especially for amateur sport, for speaking out about something that he could easily say, this happened to me, now leave me alone the rest of my life. He decided to make a difference. It's inspiring to all of us who sit there sometimes and say, maybe I should be making a difference instead of just sitting here. And by the way, many people, many NHLers, should have had one-tenth, one-fiftieth the courage of Sheldon Kennedy at some point in the previous weeks and say, wrong is wrong, this isn't right, I don't know what happened. I cannot prove whether something was consensual or not, but something within this organization needs to change. Fire them and fire them all this week. If they don't have the courage or self-responsibility to resign, make it really easy for them. But those players can't wear that uniform with that governing body next month, period. 
saw this story and uh, I I think it's really, really interesting. And and some of it is what was happening before the pandemic. And you got to go back to a February 2020 story in the Toronto Star. Toronto police tickets fell to new low in 2019, continuing a decline that has the city out of tens of millions in revenue. Police laid over just under 200,000 provincial offenses tickets in 2019. In 2010, they laid nearly 700,000 charges. What's the reason for that? Do, do you think driving drivers in Toronto got exponentially better at obeying all laws on city streets? Do you think that? Well, I'm not so sure that that's the case. Not so sure that's the case. Now, um, there's a, been a major issue happening in High Park. And uh, John Tory wanted to weigh in on the mayor of the city, obviously, who's in the news a bit this morning. Um, and he is backing police officers who face some criticism for giving tickets to speeding cyclists. Here's what he said. It's like everything else. There's a balance between those who are choosing to cycle, which we want to have happen, and those who are choosing to engage in other activities, including walking, and those who may be a little less firm on their feet or may have a stroller or whatever. But I'm told that a lot of the cycling that takes place from people who are avid cyclists and they want to cycle fairly quickly is early in the morning. I'm looking into whether there is some way in which we can say, well, fine, at those kind of hours of the day, when there are obviously fewer people walking, we can maybe have a more, you know, open approach. But I I don't, I can't apologize for or sort of reject out of hand the fact that police or anybody else would first of all, enforce the law, because if you don't like the law, then you should change it. But secondly, would be putting safety first for all the people who are using the park. OK, so is that actually happening? Well, there's obviously people that uh, would dispute this and, and say there needs to be a lot more middle ground here. Dave Shelnut uh, joins us, personal injury lawyer. People know him as the biking lawyer, and we've had him on the show before. Dave, it's great to, for you to get up early for our audience. Thanks very much for the time. Oh, thanks, Craig. I've already been to High Park running this morning, so I'm an early riser. Stop making us feel bad about our own. Fi- <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding, but I'm glad. I'm glad you, you're like that commercial where the the Marines have done more by 5 a.m. than the rest of us will do all day, and you're like, thanks. But either way, I'm glad you've been out already. What is? I I, I assume you are not aligned with John Tory's comments. What does he have wrong? Does he have anything right in his comments about finding a a, a way to do this properly? Uh. John, it, it's it's shocking how out of touch uh, the mayor is on road safety issues in Toronto, um, because if you had any grasp of what vulnerable road users, be it cyclists or pedestrians, were up against on any block, in any intersection in this city, if you looked at the police's own data to see the the serious injuries that are happening by caused by motorists, you would know that any dedication of resources should be dedic- should be focused on that. That is what's costing us money. Uh, healthcare costs are 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 huge in these cases. Um, if we're looking at problems, let's look at the ones that need to be solved um, and and put put time and effort to that. Um, it's real disappointing. You tweeted out a photo two days ago, uh, Dave. Armed Toronto police officers continuing to harass cyclists in High Park. This person was ticketed for going twenty six in a twenty. All I feel is rage. Is there a limit? Is there a number you go, well, yes, you should get a ticket. Hey, you can only get a bike going so fast and going in in High Park where there is intersections. There's always pedestrians. There's stop signs. Is there a number where you go, of course, we shouldn't be giving out 26 and a 20. But if you're rolling through at 32, 35, when should tickets be given out, if at all? So that's funny. And and it's a tough question. But what the mayor sort of floated was this idea of an early morning time where cyclists can go at speed 
uh, and exercise like they do in Central Park, like they do at the F1 loop in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And this is something that uh, cycling advocates and I just, we did two Sundays ago, we created a pop-up with safety volunteers and we created this cycling loop for a couple hours in the morning um, to encourage people who want to go fast to use that time to do so. Listen, they've taken away active TO from us. Um, there is no safe place to road cycle or 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 even bring your kids to do cycling in Toronto. Um, so we've got to create the space. And, mm -hmm. and with that comes an acknowledgement that we don't want to scare or um, freak out pedestrians or, or seniors, people walking their dogs. Um, so that's why if we focus our efforts on community solutions here, you know, we created a code of conduct for that Sunday uh, lap uh, event. Mm -hmm. um, we can really address the problems that way. When when you see images like that, um, like how much how much is a is a ticket for twenty six and a twenty? What what is that fine? It's got to be pretty minuscule, but it's more the it's more the harassment aspect that I think many people like yourself have a problem with. Give you a shocking example, Greg. Okay, my client uh, last year when the police were ticketing cyclists for speeding in High Park got a hundred and twenty dollar ticket. Um, the next week, in a bike lane adjacent to High Park, he was hit by a right turning vehicle who clipped him in a bike lane and broke his clavicle. That guy received an $85 ticket. So, um, yeah. you, you know, you can seriously injure somebody um, in your vehicle and get a less of a fine than if you're going a few kilometers over an arbitrary speed limit in a park. And I think that's that's the give and take. That's what you you surrender the idea when you go out on a bike. Uh, I don't ride as much as I'd like to. But when I do ride, I'm well aware I'm not going to win a, in a collision with a car. So I need to be hyper conscious. But listen, I've made my own uh, mistakes. I'm sure I've blazed through a stop sign once or I've made a turn and not look carefully. And I got to put my hand up and, and the cops, the car stops for me. And I say my bad. I, I don't doubt that's the world of the cyclist. I think most cyclists do know, and I'm not saying you're saying otherwise, they know they won't win that battle, but that makes them more conscious of safety than maybe someone in a vehicle with a lot of things going on. I, I certainly think so. And, and that's how I cycle. And when I'm on the roads, uh, how I see most people cycle. Um, I can tell you that in all my cases, I don't have one where someone is blown through a stop sign on a bike. It's the opposite way around. Um, that, that said, there are jerks behind the handlebar and there are jerks behind the wheel. Uh, it's just the reality of it. The difference is about 2,000 pounds of motorized steel. Yeah. Do cyclists police each other? Do they? Does that happen where it almost becomes, in essence, uh, maybe just a verbal conflict, but are, are they willing to, maybe not necessarily, in the, but with, when they sort of see something, do they say something more often now? And they say, listen, you're going to give me a, you're going to give the rest of us a bad name here. You're reckless. You're out here and you're not following, um, you know, the rules and it's, it's causing problems for all of us. Absolutely. Um, we, we don't call it policing, we, but like community engagement and mm -hmm. our firm does it all the time. We hand out free bike lights. Um, we gave posters to bike shops all across Ontario to let people know you need lights on your bike. You need to have a working bell. If you're under 18, you need to have a helmet. And these are the fines you would get for not having those. But they also keep you safe. Um, so we we kind of frame it that way. Hey, by not doing the thing you're doing, you could be a lot safer. So what fixes it? What would fix the situation in in High Park? It's it's so 
it's wonderful to it's there's so much open terrain. People love to walk there. They put strollers there. There's the capybaras. There's everything. What makes it what makes it a safer place to cycle there? And how do we find some sort of middle ground where where there's there's just not this uh, this issue and this tension with police vis-a-vis cyclists? Yeah, I mean, I think the city uh, staff are doing a great job with the high park movement strategy on and there's a meeting tonight actually about it. Um, but I think we reclaim the park for um, anybody mm. on bikes or or, or two feet or, or mobility devices, get rid of the cars and redesign the infrastructure in a way like Central Park. You know, we're a world class city. Let's have a world class park at the heart of it. All for that. Dave, thanks very much for coming on the show. I really enjoy our conversations. I always learn a lot. Appreciate the time. You too, Greg. Have a great one. Dave Shelnut uh, is personal injury lawyer, dubbed the biking lawyer. On this fertilizer story, there's two fronts. There's a lot of different fronts, to be honest. And I don't want to spend too long um, in the preamble because I want to spend a lot of time with our guests. But here's what I'll tell you. There's two things happening, um, as there often are simultaneously, that are concerning. Um, there's a uh, 35% tariff right now on everything coming from Russia. It hasn't exactly destroyed uh, the ruble, but that was the plan when Russia invaded Ukraine, was to tighten all the screws economically on Russia. And that's worked to some extent. It hasn't worked to other extent. But some of that uh, ban, uh, some of that tariff, rather, is on nitrogen fertilizer that farmers rely on to boost their crops. Now, there's the other factor, and it's Canada's own environmental policy they'd like to reduce nitrogen emissions from fertilizer use do you remember way back when and this was provincial and i think it was just after i moved back here from michigan dalton mcginty said no more pesticide on lawns and uh and except unless you're like public parks golf courses they were exempt from it but we got to start stop using in essence the heavy stuff to keep your grass green and i think most of us were okay with that okay right now we live in a country where there aren't water bans and there aren't we used to have those from time to time we're rotating uh you know you could use the water on the odd day or the even day depending on your house number but we also want to cut emissions of course we want to do the right things environmentally but Cutting emissions resulting from fertilizer application could end up hurting our economy and adding to a global food crisis, which was was kind of there. Some of it's climate based and some of it has been about what's happened between Russia and Ukraine. Look, the story's got a lot of complexities, but bottom line, farmers are a little bit ticked off, bordering on really concerned about this. And I don't blame them from the reading I've done. Ryan Koslag is executive director of Ontario Bean Growers, and he joins us now on Toronto Today. Ryan, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for making the time so early, especially, uh, although you're probably up as early as I am doing what you do. No, thanks very much for having me this morning. Did I, uh, that summation, tell me what, to pick out some of what I said and say, yeah, that's that's pretty on track, or is there anything you'd like to enhance with uh, with my explanation of why there's so many concerns and, and there may be protests at some point in time? Oh, actually, I think you did a very good job there, Greg, and uh, I think this is just a continuing trend like you had mentioned where, uh, you know, what I always describe as Canadians or their fellow neighbors of farmers are always asking them to do a little bit more, right? Reduce the pesticide use. Uh, have minimum wages, have, uh, you know, these policies in place for fertilizer, try to reduce emissions. And this all adds to the cost of what a farmer takes in order to grow their crops, which is perfectly fine. And we're happy to do it. I always run into the issue is when we go to the grocery store and when we try to export this product, everybody's looking for the cheapest price, right? Everybody's looking to try and buy the cheapest food in order to bring home to their family. And this is going to continue to put 
uh, Ontario and Canadian producers at a price disadvantage as we continue to compete with other countries uh, in the G7, for example, that are not putting these tariffs on uh, their beans or on their crops in general. 90% of what we grow in Ontario for beans is exported to other countries where we are going to be competing with their prices. And this, again, puts us at a price disadvantage. As much as we try to say that we're the best mm -hmm. bean grown in the world, we still have to compete with the prices of the other countries. Yeah, it does. I mean, people will pay for quality. There's no doubt about that. But but when we think about our economy, uh, being a step behind in, in that process right away, uh, it doesn't help us. We want an equal opportunity to to line up at the market, the global market, if you will, and say, this is the product we have, and this is why we think it's so good. But, the, you know, the tariffs and, and the prevention, like there, there's a lot of roadblocks in the way of that right now. That's correct. And again, like I had mentioned, you know, we're the only country that seems to be, in a way, punishing their farmers for the war that's happening in uh, Ukraine and Russia right now. And uh, yeah, putting that even playing field with our other G7 competing countries, recognizing that fertilizer is an essential part of growing food in this country, where we have an inflationary issue when it comes to food production and food purchasing for our consumers. Right now, maybe we should be maximizing the amount that we can produce in order to lower those costs as opposed to increasing costs and therefore maybe reducing our yields and reducing the potential for what we can produce for food in this country. I can't I can't think of anything more important than, yeah, sustaining uh, how we sell food, how we how we obviously, you know, produce food and then when it ends up going to market. I mentioned earlier, it's one thing if they say, hey, Greg and Ryan, you can't use pesticide on your lawn anymore because but but we're going to make an exception for public parks and golf courses. I, I like both those things. That's great that we're doing that. But I think I think we also need an exception for the people that get food and eventually it ends up on our plate at our table or in our refrigerators. I think we make an exception there or we're, 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 we're doing the wrong things. I agree with you. And on top of that, we have to recognize that fertilizers are one of the highest costs in producing food or growing their crops in Ontario and Canada. And so they're already in a situation of trying to make sure that they're using the most efficient way of using that fertilizer on their crops. There's already additional stewardship programs for which farmers can participate in that reduces your fertilizer even more. But it's not like this is something that they want to throw away or that it's a cost that they just, you know, blow to the wind. It is a very mm. precision type uh, part of the process of growing their crops. And so um, I believe that our farmers are using it very efficiently and very environmentally friendly at the same time in order to grow food for this country. So it should be prioritized. It should have the exception. Ryan Kostleg is our guest. He's executive director of Ontario Bean Growers. Um, so the 2020 uh, strength and climate plan from the government, this is released probably actually right as as we're getting into our, uh, our, our, our COVID nightmare, but they called for a 30% reduction in emissions associated with fertilizer use. I think we agree that's awfully ambitious. That's where some of the damage is done. But to your point, can we do some reduction? Is there a number you look at and you say, we could do this five or 6%, but 30 is, 30 is just not, it's not sustainable and it's going to cost, it's going to cost all of us in the long run. I think what uh, we're finding from our farmers that I sp with, that I speak to is that you know we're not looking for any kind of a forced program. Certainly, we mm -hmm. believe that there are a lot of incentivized programs that could be implemented for stewardship on fertilizer. You know, a reinvigoration of the calculations, or examining the soils, or examining you know the situation for which you'd need fertilizer applied, and using it uh, extremely precisely. Um, so it's it's a matter of what we believe to be incentivizing as opposed to forcing and putting down the iron fist for uh, how this could proceed. 
And uh, yeah, I think we could find some efficiencies. What numbers that might look like, I'm not exactly 100%, but mm. um, I always believe in having an incentive instead of the stick, right? The carrot instead of the stick. And I see there's a statement um, from the Alberta and Saskatchewan governments, because obviously the provinces are pushing back. This is a joint press release from the Saskatchewan and Alberta governments. Western Canadian farmers already produce the most sustainable agri-food products in the world. They're continually being asked to do more with less. We cannot feed the growing world population with a reduction in fertilizer. And that's, in essence, the problem. That's correct. And I think like we're always going to be in a situation where fertilizer is going to be required for growing our crops in Ontario or Canada. Um, and what we are also asking is the government would take a look at the investments that they could make into nitrogen fertilizer production, which we could very much do in this province and in this country. You know, natural gas is the main ingredient of the process in order to make nitrogen. I think it's fairly simplistic, but it's just a matter of building the plants and being able to be sustainable. But I think having a naive notion that we'll never need fertilizer, we'll never need nitrogen, will not be sustainable. The crops will suffer significantly and the yields and the food that we produce will be uh, very reduced. So. Um, I think that we should be looking more for a partnership with our government in order to make this a priority and and not so much focused on, you know, eliminating it and ultimately making the costs suffered by the farmers and by the consumers. Last thing for you, Ryan, have you noticed and, and paid attention to some of the global protests about, about these kind of issues in, in the Netherlands? There's been a massive protest from farmers there about what, what their restrictions are, environmentally speaking. In Sri Lanka, there's a lot more issues than just fertilizer and farms. The economy's, in essence, gone bankrupt. They, can't, they, they don't have enough fuel uh, for that uh, small country right now. But like, that, that can't have escaped your attention or other farmers, that their people are amassing together and really making a lot of noise about this. And there's a suspicion that, that there should be noise made here about it. Yeah, and you know, not only are you know families connected in in the farming community of uh, you know the Dutch in Ontario and in Canada with the Netherlands, and we're taking a look at what's going on there too. But like I mentioned, ninety percent of what we grow in Ontario is actually exported, and these countries are often in Europe too. So we're finding this as being a you know where is our end market uh, going, and what are they requiring for us to to produce our food? And a lot of times. The requirements are going to be the same in Europe as what they'll be for Ontario because that's where it's going. So not only is it a matter of, you know, watching that our governments might align policy, but also uh, discovering where our end consumer is and what they want. So, yeah, we're very concerned. Certainly every time they introduce a new restriction, it makes it more difficult for us to grow and not and compete on a global basis. And like, again, I always say, if, if the consumers are willing to pay for that at the grocery store, I'm totally fine with it. But I often find they go to the grocery store and they look for the cheapest product, you know, Peruvian, Chinese, whatever it is. And that's what they're doing. And, and they have to realize that they're implementing these policies on their neighbors, on their fellow Canadians, on their fellow farmers. And, you know, these add costs. And so I hope everybody goes to the grocery store and looks for that Ontario product, looks for that Canadian product, because they know the way that it's being grown is the way that they want it. But uh, I worry that that's not always the case. Yeah, and it'd be great if they were prominently uh, prominently displayed. We all, we all want to buy local and we all want to buy Canadian. But you're right. We drive two minutes to the local grocery store uh, because that's where it's convenient. Uh, Ryan, I hope we can follow up on this in the in the weeks to come and, and sometime later in the summer before September. I think it's an important issue, and I really thank you for shedding some light on it. Appreciate the time. Thanks very much. You bet, man. Uh, Ryan Kosley, guys, executive director of the Ontario Bean Growers. 
Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9. We'll be giving away Brian Adams tickets as we have been all week to his Toronto show in October. So be aware of that. We'll do that in the 6 o'clock hours. you got to be up early for them. And you can hear the show at 640toronto.com, on the Radio Player Canada app, or right on the AM dial at 640. Thanks so much for listening.